Hello everyone and welcome back to Sightless Fun, a podcast about board game accessibility for people who are blind and visually impaired. I'm your host, Ertai Shashko, and today I have a doctor on the podcast. I believe this is our first doctor here, and that's Michael Heron from Meeple Like Us. Welcome to the show, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's really great to have you here. Uh, Meeple Like Us was the inspiration for my blog and then later this show. So yeah, it really is awesome to have you here today. I mean, that's uh, it, it's very flattering to find out that somebody has actually listening and paying attention to the stuff that we're talking about. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, every time I'm thinking about getting a new game, like the first thing I do is uh, enter the game name, space, meeple like us on Google, <laughs> and just try to see if there's an accessibility teardown for that before investigating forward whether I can actually play it or not. Well, hopefully we haven't steered you wrong in that. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you're seeing any like uh, hits from Macedonia, or I guess Google updated it to North Macedonia now in your analytics, <laughs> that's probably me. <laughs> So, yeah, what are we going to talk about today? Uh, well, um, I see you've been talking a lot about Discworld on Twitter, uh, oh, at least. Yeah. <laughs> uh, lately, I've seen a few tweets about it. So, we would you like to change the topic a bit and talk about Discworld? I've never read the uh, books before. Like, give I me mean, a pitch uh, for the you, books. You might be joking there, but it is a constant <laughs> fight not to just give up Meeple Like Us and start a Discworld blog. I'm just <laughs> such a huge fan of those books. Um, so, I mean, I'm not even sure you could really give a, a pitch that would give even the, the slightest taste of what the books are. They're sort of comic fantasy, but satirical about real life. Very well written, very funny, with this overarching mythology and consistency to it that just makes them like a, a 40 book long series of just absolute joy. Oh boy, 40. Yeah, there's a lot of them. Oh boy, okay. Uh, are they all uh, available in an audiobook format? Uh, yep, yep. Oh, that's good. Uh, abridged and unabridged, depending on what you prefer. Well, I don't think I've ever listened to an abridged. I think maybe yeah, World War Z was the only one because, and that was that's also uh, acquired through. Very legal way someone had acquired, I don't know, multiple versions and then just uh, created a definitive version because yeah. I think they released a couple of them. The, but... the World War Z audiobook is extraordinary for the, the number of people who are actually involved in doing the readings. Yeah. It's just it's just superb. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I guess I guess I'll check this world out. Don't don't start with the first one. Start with Mort if you're gonna start with any of them. Oh, okay, that's that's good to know. Is there a reason like is the first one bad or well it's just it took a while for the books to find their feet and the first maybe three or so aren't really the same kind of books as the ones that follow so i always say you know treat them like a a historical curiosity you know go back to them later but Mm. don't don't start with them because the rest of the series isn't really like the impression you get from the first few books Mm, i see oh that's that's uh, good info right there so thanks Thanks for that. Yeah, come to me for the, the best Discworld information available in board gaming. <laughs> yeah. All right. So now to get back to our actual topic, we're going to talk yeah. about board gaming accessibility today. Oh, if if we must. Yes. Yes. I'm 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 sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should record a, I don't know, a bonus episode for my <laughs> Patreon, <laughs> which your Discworld. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which I don't have yet. Um. So. Well, before before we get to it, why don't you tell us a bit about, well, your background? I mean, it's probably a long story, but briefly, like, who is Dr. Michael Heron? I mean, it's not a very long story. It's a very boring story, basically. I am the least interesting person I know. So when, when people ask me, you know, talk about yourself, it's a case of, well, I, I spend most of my time either sitting in front of a computer, sitting playing a game, or standing in front of a class lecturing. Basically, that's 90% of my life. The other other 10% is occasionally I play a game on the Switch. That's (laughs) that's essentially, you know, the 100% view of what my life actually is. So, yeah, I'm just not a very interesting person. 
Right. The thing I often say to people is, I'm glad I'm not famous because my biography would be some tedious reading. You know, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't wish reading or writing that on anybody. Right. Well, okay. I guess I can just switch it a bit and talk about board gaming. Um, like, what, uh, what's your current favorite game? Maybe we can start there. My current favorite game is, and it's my, been my favorite game for a while now, Chinatown. Uh, because it's maybe the the purest game that just gets to the heart of what it is to want something and not get it. It's just a game of negotiation, a game of trading away properties to gain hopefully some kind of financial advantage. But everybody is constantly negotiating, cross-negotiating, discussing, cross-discussing. And it's just an hour, two hours of incredibly energetic discussion. And at the end, Mm. you just feel exhausted. It's just a fantastic game. Yeah. Uh, I remember reading your review several months ago. Um, Mm. I think it was around the beginning of 2019. Uh, It definitely was either spring or before that. Yeah. And I, I really like that review. Really would was expecting your teardown and hoping that uh, the visual accessibility part of it was going to yeah. be, uh, well, it would have been passable or playable with some modifications, yeah. but it's... didn't really receive any good points there. No, I mean, it, it was a brutal uh, tier. I think Chinatown is still the least accessible game that we've looked at on the blog. I think mm. of all the ones we've I think Blood Bowl was the one before that, and Chinatown is now the sort of reigning champion. And there hasn't really been anything that's come close to being as inaccessible as Chinatown has been. And it's a massive shame because it's such a fantastic game. Yeah. Did you uh, did you review the initial version, like the one that was out of print? Because uh, I think they reprinted it now. Uh, the one, I think it was the one that was out of print. Uh, I, I spent a bit of time looking for it, including at my local game store, and I wasn't able to find it. And then uh, a guy, I know, the guy who runs Tabletop Scotland, mm-hmm. uh, he said, oh, I was in your local game store, and I found a copy of Chinatown. So obviously he just managed to look in the one place that I hadn't looked, and they had a copy of it. Oh. I think it was the one that until recently uh, was out of print, but I don't think the new print has changed much. Mm. I think it is literally just a new printing of it rather than a, a revised edition. Right. Yeah, so I guess most of the things are the same. Like, yeah, I don't think there's there's much hope of anything significantly having changed. Yeah. I mean, as far as I'm aware, they even kept the deeply problematic cover art. So if mm. they didn't change that, I don't think there's much chance they changed the accessibility of it. Yeah, I see. Well, um, yeah, it's uh, in any case, it's nice to know that your favorite game has been Chinatown yeah. for a while and still is. So, and it was a Scrabble before that. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I still remain a, a champion of Scrabble. I, I refuse to let people consign it to the, the scrapyard <laughs> of history. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so, what what made you? start meeple like us like why accessibility like do you personally have uh any kind of disability so you needed to talk about this like what made you start it well i'm not personally affected by a lot of issues i mean there as you grow older certain certain things tend to occur and i have like diabetes and such so there are some Hmm. some issues on a a day-to-day basis that do tend to emerge but basically, it's just because when I was doing my my PhD, it was on the topic of uh, technology to help an aging workforce. And that essentially became a focus on the accessibility of technology. And when I, uh, when I got my PhD and, and took on my first sort of permanent lectureship post, I thought, well, I could continue on just down the accessibility route, or I can try and find a way to sort of merge my my twin passions of accessibility and games. Mm. So I started doing some stuff in video games. Uh, but, I mean, it, it's, it's fantastic that there is so much progress being made in accessibility for video games, but it also means that there's, there's relatively little a newcomer can do to, to move that conversation on. Because people have been having the argument about accessibility in video games for a good 10, 15 years. Yeah. And anything that I could say at this point here is sort of lost in the fact that there are already some very good, very capable, very uh, articulate advocates uh, for video game accessibility. 
Mm-hmm. But people weren't really looking at board games as far as that goes. Yeah. And I thought, well, maybe I'll maybe I'll have a look at this. Maybe I'll just spend a bit of time playing a few games, writing up my thoughts on the accessibility. It'll be an interesting research paper. I'll do it for a couple of weeks and then I'll be done. And then it turned out, oh, wow, <laughs> board games are fantastic. And the level of interesting sophistication over the accessibility uh, issues is unlike anything I've ever seen. It is, I think, the the single richest domain for uh, looking at accessibility that I've ever encountered. And so it's lasted now a bit longer than a few weeks. It's We're coming up for three and a half years now and yeah. still finding new things all the time. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really great. Um, do you, like, remember for your PhD, let's say, thesis, did you come up with the thesis idea to be about accessibility yourself or was it uh, recommended to you by, I don't know, your mentor or? Well, I mean, it's it's kind of awkward to admit this, but when I started my PhD, I could not have cared less about accessibility. I didn't think, I mean, I just didn't think about it at all. Uh, when people talk to me about things like, you know, user design, usability and such, I always thought in terms of, you know, the flow of an application, the flow of an app, yeah. rather than the actual interaction difficulties people have. So when I uh, interviewed for the PhD, uh, because it was, it was a relatively well-funded PhD, it was it was in collaboration with IBM, and it was a collaboration with the University of Miami in Florida and such. Mm. And so it was, it was quite a, a good project. And when I sat down and sort of spoke about that, I spoke about things like, innovative interface design, Nintendo, Apple, those kind of things. But the accessibility angle largely came about just because the more you looked at the problem of older adults in the workplace, the more it became about just technology is not very usable for anybody who is not very comfortable with technology in general. Mm -hmm. You sit down at a random application, the chances are, if you don't have that kind of background in technology, that it's mystifying. And a lot of the decisions that are made uh, by people who people who would be like me at the time did not take into account the fact that people, you know, sometimes you forget things as you get older. Sometimes it's harder to see things. Yeah. Uh, having to, to ver- press half a dozen tiny little checkboxes is a massive problem, all those kind of things. So it became, uh, it started off just being something where I, w- I was trying to find other angles on it. Like, how could we help older adults in the workplace? And I thought about things like, you know, uh, corporate knowledge and things. How do you how do you let people who are experts in things with their knowledge pass on to other people and such? But increasingly, it just became uh, the accessibility angle became the, the richest part of it. And the bit I actually found in the end, by far the most interesting aspect of the work. Mm. Yeah, uh, the reason I asked this question was because I was pretty much the same. I mm. mean, I, uh, I'm yeah, a software engineer myself, and. Before, uh, like my eyesight started dropping, uh, like quite a bit. Now that I started, I don't know, using inverted colors initially, mm. then increasing the font. Uh, before that, I never really thought about accessibility. I mean, I remember, I don't know, I'm a Windows user. Uh, I've. I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, what I'm, yeah, what I was, I want to say is that uh, in Windows, uh, when I would see that ease of use or accessibility icon, I believe it was an icon mm. of a guy in a wheelchair. You know, you just mm. you don't even open it to see like what options are there because you just say, wait, no, I don't think that I'm disabled. Or anything, you just I don't know, gloss yeah. over it and just just ignore it, basically. And I'm ashamed to say that I was like that until like, oh, hold on, uh, I need I need I need some help now. This doesn't seem to work as good as it did while I could still see. And mm. now I'm just seeing all the struggles that people need to go through to get something working or I don't know, use something. Yeah. So yeah, that was why I asked whether it was yourself, like you found it out by accident no, or ab- something or <laughs> No, absolutely yeah. not. I mean my PC supervisors were very focused on accessibility. And so they were the ones that sort of drove the project that direction. And I resisted it for a while because and this might be something you also uh, have some kind of empathy with. I didn't think accessibility was difficult enough to be interesting. 
Mm. You know, you think to yourself, well, you know, it's just it's just making things easier. And I like programming challenges because my background is software engineering as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like I like to be challenging myself with interesting code. And then one of my supervisors said this thing, and it stuck with me the entirety of the rest of my life. And it's if you think it's hard to do something, wait, anything, if it's hard to do, just imagine how much harder it is to do in an accessible way. And yeah. suddenly that became a case of, oh, yeah. That's actually true. It's easy for me to make an interface nobody can work with, but is works with some interesting code. It's much, much harder to make something everybody can work with. So that's where it became sort of something that was more compatible with my ego at the time, which <laughs> felt that accessibility just, it was something people who couldn't code were worried about. And it turns out that was absolute nonsense. <laughs> yeah, this, this, this was interesting. Um, so, yeah. Um, I mean, I like to be completely honest about the journey I took to accessibility because, you know, it, it doesn't paint me in an especially compassionate light. Mm-hmm. But the simple fact is there's a lot of people who don't think about accessibility because they aren't uh, either spending time with people who are focused on it or they don't have those personal requirements themselves. Sometimes what it takes is a sense of, oh, this is something that actually does affect me before people actually start to pay attention. And when I was doing my, my PhD software, it was a it was a piece of software that basically worked out when you had problems interacting with the Windows interface, and it would change things in the background and say, "Hey, do you like this change I just made?" So, for example, it would look at things like double click speeds or whether or not you were able to click on targets and all those kind of things. And when I was doing the testing of it, I thought, "Right, I'm going to." Because all my settings were up to the, the least accessible they could be because, you know, I'm a proper computing person. I can do all this kind of stuff. And then I sat down with the software and it basically said to me, yeah, you could do with a lot of these settings being changed because you're not actually working with this computer as well as you should be. Turned out a lot of my double clicks weren't registering. A lot of times I was missing clicking huh. on buttons and things. And the software itself pointed out and I thought, huh, that's... <laughs> Okay, I hadn't expected that because when you think about, as you say, you know, well, accessibility is for people with disabilities. That's not necessarily me. Turns out we all benefit from this kind of stuff more often than we might think. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So since starting Meeple Like Us, so you said it's been three and a half years almost, Mm -hmm. uh, have you noticed improvements in the board gaming industry? Well, it's kind of a mixed story. I mean... If you're looking at the big publishers, I would say, honestly, not really. I mean, maybe there's a little bit more uh, focus given to things like colorblindness because it is an issue people are far more willing to discuss now than they used to. Yeah. But across the board, I would generally say not, not hugely. But there is some cause for uh, cause for optimism because I think smaller, newer publishers are far more interested in the topic because they are trying to make their mark in a very competitive marketplace. And one of the big market signals that they have for that is a way of saying, hey, my games are available to the widest possible range of people, and accessibility is a way to actually do that. So I think some younger companies looking to distinguish themselves are more interested in accessibility than a lot of the established uh, established publishers are. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting, and well, I'm hoping that uh, in a few years that will extend to the bigger publishers as well. Especially like if those designers that I don't know self-publish games get yeah. hired for bigger games, yeah. and maybe they can just push. Well, I mean, that's it's kind of how this it's kind of how people make those big uh, big changes in the way companies behave. You know, you get a change in attitude in a younger generation of designers and such, they do become larger designers as time goes by, and then they become what sets the new norm. It's very difficult to change company practice when it's something that has been working for the past 10, 20 years or whatever. Mm. People look at it and say, well, there's not a lot of disabled gamers out there, so we don't really need to worry about it. And the other, sort of the newer publishers are thinking, well, actually, if my game is accessible, more disabled gamers will play it and there will be a larger audience of disabled gamers because they know these games are available. Yeah. So some of the uh, the younger publishers in particular are looking at this with an eye to the future. Hmm. You have had some ups and downs with the site and mm. most recently you posted that you will keep going 
your mm-hmm. latest uh, update was that once you move to Sweden, uh, seems like the site will keep running. So yeah, that's that's certainly the plan. Yeah. Yeah. What really motivates you to keep doing this? What drives you? Honestly, for a lot of it, it's just easier to write the site than it is not to write the site. Because when I'm not writing for the site, I'm thinking to myself, well, I could be doing something useful with my time. And, oh, I haven't written that thing there, and I haven't written that thing there. It's it's difficult for me to switch off from the kind of stuff that I do, because any time I play a game, instantly I'm going through the process of, well, I would say this about it, and I would say that about it. And then once mm-hmm. you've got that in your head, it, it kind of has to come out. You know, it's yeah. it's not doing any good just rattling around inside your brain. And there's just a... I think for for me in particular, it's a case of if I don't get it out onto paper, it's just going to it's just going to keep me awake at nights. You know, getting it onto paper is just a way of just exercising these thoughts from my head, just getting them so I don't need to worry about them anymore. Hmm. That I guess ties into your process. Um, so, how long does it usually take you to, I don't know, uh, plan uh, and write and publish? I don't know, take pictures. How long does it usually take you to analyze a game? Ooh. So we, uh, my partner and I, uh, Pauline and I, we play mm-hmm. games, basically we'll play a game at least three times before we're ready to sort of write anything about it. And often it's more than three times. I, I Yesterday I put up the, uh, the review of Terra Mystica. Uh, the accessibility teardown for that is, <laughs> it's brutal, but not quite as bad as Chinatown. <laughs> but, uh, I've played that game maybe a dozen times or so because I was never at the point where I thought to myself, yeah, I'm ready to actually see what I think of this. So some mm-hmm. games take dozens and dozens of times. Most games take three or four times. Every so often you play a game where it's once and you think, yeah, that's I know everything there is to know about this game, but that's relatively rare. So three, four times playing a game. Uh, most of the accessibility analysis is happening as the game is being played, but rarely to the point that I'm actually writing anything down because I like the teardowns to be a bit more spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Um, the photographs, maybe a couple of hours uh, on top of that. I mean, generally my, my process for taking photographs is point my phone roughly in the direction of the game and hope <laughs> something's in focus, which is because there are people out there who are doing phenomenal oh, yeah. board game photographs. Uh, you know, Ross of More Games Please, for example, yep. his photographs are just amazing. And I... Even if I even if I wanted to, I can't compete with something like that. So it's literally just a case of is it roughly in focus? That's fine. And then I use those photographs as the basis of going through a checklist of all the accessibility things I want to talk about. So I have like a, a list of what I refer to as lenses, but basically just questions I ask myself about the game, like what's the contrast like? How much space is there for components? How much does it sprawl over a table and all those different kinds of things? Working through the, the accessibility teardown by itself is actually surprisingly quick. It takes me about two hours to write a teardown uh, because they're, they're very they're very well structured. You know, there's a very particular order in which things are done. And it turns out all I'm doing is reporting on stuff that I've already seen anyway. There's, there's no real... There tends to be very little opinion forming in the right. accessibility teardown because... I tend to focus on what is the game asking you to do as opposed to anything else. So it's really just reporting on, well, you have to shuffle things. You have to think long-term strategy. You have to be able to do arithmetic and those kind of things. The reviews take a lot longer to write in a lot of cases because often it's just difficult to start writing a review because they're not structured. You know, What's the point you want to make? What's the thing that you think is at least semi-original you can say? So by and large, it's a case of maybe... Uh, I, I, I devote a day at the weekend to write a, up a review and a teardown at the same time. But mostly it's just drawing from maybe a few hours of work here and there that's that's fed into the, the observations. That's 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 impressive. You've uh you're closing up on two hundred games now? I, I actually it? I actually finished writing the review and teardown of the two hundredth game yesterday. Oh awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that yeah, congratulations. I mean oh, thank you very much. It was Istanbul. Oh, awesome! Yeah. <laughs> I've been looking into the game. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm Turkish myself. Yeah, living in North Macedonia, I'm Turkish, yeah. and I feel like I should own that game as a Turk. <laughs> mm. 
<laughs> but yeah, looking I mean, forward to it's it's a very good game. You know, it's it's a very enjoyable, very clever game. It doesn't come out especially well in the visual accessibility section. But actually no, actually, no, no, it does. It comes out with a B minus. So hmm. should be playable. I mean, based from what I've seen gameplay yeah. wise, like it's grid based. Um mm-hmm. well, maybe the blocking of well, other players I believe are able to block you. So that's well, I mean, be a problem, one of the interesting but... things about the way Istanbul works is it has dif- different size of markers for each of the individual uh, players. Uh-huh. So you have like your your small assistant markers, your your slightly larger merchant marker, a bigger family member marker. Mm-hmm. So you can actually tell quite a lot by touch about what's happening on the board. And it's, I mean, I suspect that was accidental. I don't think it was like a, an intentional accessibility aid that they had in there. But it's actually surprising how much tactile information they've managed to put into to Istanbul without mm. overcrowding the board in any way. Yeah, that's well. Most of the accessibility uh, fixes that they do, let's say, or the improvements, they're mostly by accident. I guess. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, <laughs> like they don't go, okay, how can we fix this? They just do something that I don't know looks aesthetically yeah. pleasing. To when I when I did the accessibility teardown for lanterns. Uh, the designer of the game, obviously, maybe like some somebody linked him to or something, but he came into the comments because it, it got quite a, a positive write-up. And he said, I hadn't considered any of this from the, <laughs> from the perspective of accessibility. It was just a nice coincidence. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, really hoping that that will change in the near future. Because... I mean, the thing that we, we've got to look forward to is the fact that at a certain point, accessibility just becomes good design. Right. You know, like when you've got predictive text on a phone, for example, people forget that was once an assistive aid uh, for mm. people with physical impairments. When people uh, have their Audible subscriptions, people forget that once upon a time they were called books on tape for the blind. Mm. You know, once they become, once people realize the benefits that come from these kind of things, it just becomes good design. And you've heard that, I mean, I'm not going to be telling you anything new, but just for people listening here, just in case they haven't heard it, the idea of the curb cut effect, which is, you know, when back in Berkeley in the 60s, when they used to, when people had difficulty uh, getting their wheelchairs around the city streets, uh, activists suggested, well, why don't we cut a little dip into the curb so it's easier for people to get into the road and easier for people to get to the other side? And they tried that out and they turned out that, well, people with buggies, uh, people with shopping, postal workers, cyclists everybody benefited from this yeah. so it's just a thing that we have now it's not an accessibility aid it's just a thing that we have and people forget what the original inspiration was so i think a lot of the accessibility aids that we see built into games at the moment are likely to become more common just because people will forget or won't even realize that they're they have a a purpose for making it easier for people with disabilities to play games yeah yeah absolutely so um from the games that you have analyzed so far, mm-hmm. what do you think are the most common visual accessibility problems that you've run into? Well, I mean, some of the mo- I mean, some of these are very, very obvious, which are like contrast tends to be very poor in a lot of games. People forget, for example, that you know you need to be able to differentiate locations on a board, and it's good if they are very different from each other. You know, even mm-hmm. if you have like a, a strong contrast of the lines around the location on a board. That's a big improvement. Text in particular tends to be something that I don't know if people don't realize it's the case or whether it's just they think, well, we don't want to violate the the aesthetics of what we're doing. But often text bleeds into the background and people don't use letterboxing and such behind it so people are, uh, it's easier to read. One mm. very common thing is that games are full of tokens that have exactly the same size and shape. Like, if you've got uh, 10 different kinds of currency in a game, well, why not look at the currency in your pocket to see how accessible money actually works? Hmm. You know, you change the size or you change the shape or you change the size and the shape. Yeah. And by doing that in a an incremental pattern, you can actually have it so people can identify every single token just by touch. And you find with meeples and, and all these different kinds of things that the only thing that you have to tell a different one player from another one is the color of their meeple, and that doesn't always work for people. If you have even just a, a difference in not just size of something, but the actual form factor of it, 
it also helps people know that that's something different. You know, th- th- like if you have like a five currency versus a five victory point marker, you mm-hmm. can't have them both circles. But if you have one being a star and the other one being an actual coin, it's obvious that they're two different things. So it actually helps people with cognitive impairments as well. Yeah. And maybe one of the the other issues with this kind of thing is that when pe- if people think about, uh, if designers think about the sort of accessibility issues people have, a lot of them tend to assume, oh, well, there's some solution that people are using anyway because people manage in real life. And one of the conversations I sometimes have with people is about the idea of paper money, which wall-to-wall is an accessibility problem. But people say, well, you know, blind people have paper money, so what's the problem? But what they don't realize is that the speed at which money circulates in a game means that the coping strategies in real life don't actually work. You can't fold over money if it's going to be changing hands five, six, seven, eight times in the course of a like a single round of the game. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, in real life, I guess, yeah, you can, I don't know, fold corners or yeah. get different compartments in your wallet and just separate yeah, it like exactly, that. exactly, yeah. But, yeah, that doesn't really work in a game. That's true. Um, I remember, uh, well, it was a while ago uh, that you were working on creating guidelines for mm-hmm. publishers and game designers to use, and it was a collaborative project basically mm-hmm. and multiple i don't know there also were game designers there were uh, uh accessibility advocates that were also included in the project do you have a status update for that project like where is it at well we actually do have uh, a set of guidelines in all the criteria that maple like us tends to cover The problem has been that because it's been such a slow-moving project for various kinds of reasons, most of the people who'd volunteered to begin with are just either not contactable or uh, have have moved on to other things or they're no longer in a position to be able to contribute to that. Mm -hmm. So what we currently have at the moment is a set of unvalidated guidelines. Now, this this sort of falls into the, the, the motivations behind the site for Meeple Like Us are partially academic. You know, the idea that I can get papers and things published from this and that I can go through an academic rigorous process to arrive at an interesting research output. In this case, it would be the guidelines. But part of that is also a case of it's it's one thing for me to write a teardown and say, this is my opinion on what the game is asking people to do. It's very, very different if you're putting guidelines in front of people and saying, this is what you should be doing. Because my my position as a relatively abled person means that I can't really just provide suggestions to people and say, that's what you should do. It has to be validated by people who have an embodied experience of the different kinds of conditions. So we have a big list of these guidelines. A lot of them have come with, uh, from people with disabilities. But the thing is, they need to be properly evaluated. They need to be properly peer-reviewed. And what they also really need is to be sort of experimentally tested and the logistics of that is a significant challenge because it's getting people who are actually have the time and availability to actually look at these things and say, yeah, that makes sense. And let's let's narrow it down to like the smallest possible set of these that make sense for everything. It's not, I mean, it's by no means a dead project. Mm-hmm. It's just, it needs to change form to meet the actual rig- the requirements of rigorous testing that, when people look at it, they can say, yeah, okay, these actually come from a place, not just some random Scottish guy on the internet, yeah. but people who actually have lived experience of these kind of conditions. Yeah, that's true. I, mean, I guess, well, it's it's been done by volunteers. I guess there's mm. no funding behind it. Do you think no. like your move to Sweden and I believe you will be working in a game development position mm-hmm. sort of thing at the university that you're moving to? Yeah, so uh, the the full title is Senior Lecturer in Interaction Design for Games. So is is basically a, a perfect match for the kind of stuff I like doing uh, for people like us and also what my professional uh, aims are. Do you think that, uh, I don't know, maybe you can get interest by the university itself to fund the development of these guidelines? Well, literally the first thing that I'm going to do when I arrive there is I'm going to put together uh, a research bid that solves 
the problem I just uh, described about earlier. So one of the things when I was at Dundee University, one of the things they had, and every university I've been in since, I have missed it. They had what was called a user pool. And it was essentially just people would come into the university and they'd attend some free classes and they'd sit and be taught how to do uh, things. So it was mostly older adults at Dundee University. And they were available for research purposes as well. So you would go down and say, hey, who's available to answer a few questions? And you basically had just a ready-made pool of uh, research participants. And that was so phenomenally convenient. And it was a, a baseline for so much very productive work that happened at Dundee University. And very few universities do that kind of thing. But I would really like to have something similar uh, as a, a games-focused pool of people. And the, probably the very first research grant proposal I put in when I move across is going to be on let's try and build this user pool. Let's have it available for us in the university. Let's have it available for the games industry in Sweden. Let's have it available for other universities as well for people who want to come in. And if I had access to that, then this problem essentially goes away. Yeah, and uh, I guess that will also help the video games industry, the board gaming industry, because Sweden is big as far as I know on at least video game developers. I believe DICE are based Mm -hmm. in Sweden and Mojang were there and... I'm yeah, pretty sure there are notch, unfortunately. Um, yeah, but well, <laughs> I guess now they're pie, unfortunately. <laughs> oh boy, but yeah, <laughs> I guess I downs. guess it will. Yeah, I guess it will like benefit all of them, and yeah, it it definitely is an interesting thing that you're well, you're planning, thinking right now. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully they uh, bite and want to look into that some more. Well, I mean, there, is a, there are a lot of benefits to come from it. And one of the, the big things about this kind of work is what you re- the real solution for everybody is not to listen to me or listen to you or look at a set of guidelines. It's mm-hmm. to get people with disabilities to be part of the design and the testing process. But that's not easy because then you have to actually find people uh, who can be part of the process and get them to give up some of their time to help you with those kind of things, pay them ideally for the kind of stuff that they're doing. And what this user pool would hopefully be designed to do is to make it so that if you do want to include people with disabilities in the process, there's a place you can go, you mm. know, uh, make available a little bit of money to fund people for what they're actually doing. And we will connect you up with the people who are actually, who can feed into your process and give you actual embodied experience. And I think that would be, I think that's a great pitch for a research project, but we'll just, we'll have to see what happens with it. Yeah, yeah. I wish you good luck with that. And Thank you very much. Yeah, really, really hoping that something comes out of it. So have you, have you, well, you attended Tabletop Scotland? When was it? Yes. The last time. Uh, did you get in touch with any publishers or game designers there? And I don't know, show them, show them some of the guidelines that you're working on. Like, did you get so, any uh, feedback? from actual publishers? Well, Tabletop Scotland this year, basically I spent most of my time sort of sitting in a corner feeling sorry for myself because I had a massive cold. Oh, and no. So basically it, it struck me on the Friday before we actually headed in there. And the entire time I was there, I was thinking, I just want to go home. I just I don't oh, feel, man. I just want to go home. Uh, UK Games Expo before that, there are, a num- there are a number of publishers out there who are willing to have the conversation. Uh, but... I mean, generally speaking, it's just as far as most publishers are concerned, this is just a blog on the internet and you you treat it like any other blog on the internet. The fact that uh, accessibility is what I think is a big focus for what people should be uh, moving towards over time. Mm. How many people have their own particular agenda that they think all publishers should be bending towards? You know, so it's a case of how do you actually convince people that your personal hobby horse is the one that they should also be considering writing. And it's not easy to do, but there are publishers out there. But for example, I, I don't really want to name too many names because I'll, I'll forget people. Uh, and that's, that, doesn't seem, that doesn't seem fair. But there are a number of publishers who will support the work we're doing with, for example, review copies. Or mm-hmm. uh, occasionally uh, they'll ask for sort of uh, some consultancy or a, a quick eye over some of the stuff that they're actually doing. And that's happening more and more. 
And the more that happens, the more that gets normalized. As I say, I think the more likely it is that other companies are going to actually start paying proper attention. But it is still the case that, generally speaking, publishers on the whole, not not hugely, not hugely motivated by this topic. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, just recently, like I saw Repos Productions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, they are a French publisher. A uh, Spanish, I think. Oh, maybe. Well, I, I say that, but then I did say in the We Are Not Wizard podcast that you were Greek, so ah, yes. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not a good idea to listen to me when I say. What countries people are actually from? <laughs> well, you like you were very close to a huge, uh, well, maybe not controversy, but yeah, uh, I don't know whether how familiar you are with Macedonian and Greek politics. And enough to know when it's pointed out that I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like when I heard Greek, I'm like, oh boy, oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> you like to live dangerously, Michael. <laughs> well, me. You- like sometimes you're under pressure on these kind of things and you're thinking, oh, oh, I, I didn't actually look this up, so I'm just going to say the closest thing that sounds like it's right in my head. And every yeah. so often you just you just say something incredibly stupid and that was one Oh, no, well, no, I mean, it's fine. I mean, it's uh, like if you said, like, I don't know, Bulgarian or I don't know, Serbian or I don't mm. know, the, the other neighboring countries, it's fine. But yeah. with Greece, we have had this name feud for a long time. Yeah. And yeah, it was easy. Like uh, I was talking to a friend and he's like, Oh, I, I bet he did it intentionally. I mean, come on, man. <laughs> no, no, it must have been intentional. <laughs> I mean, it's, exa- it's exactly like if somebody says, oh, yeah, you're Michael uh, from England. Like, what? <laughs> how, how dare you? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, no, I mean, absolutely nothing intentional. I, I am just that, <laughs> that much of an idiot, basically. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I, I was just joking and I just said, okay, I'm going to use this to bully you into coming to the podcast. Not quite right, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but I, what I was saying about repos, uh, one uh, good thing that I saw, I believe it was yesterday, that they created a colorblind friendly yeah. logo. Uh, not sure whether it was for a game or it was there. Uh, so apparently they have like it's something that they're now doing because uh, they have colorblind people on staff and so because of that they've now moved into this idea of well let's double code all our information we have color and icons which is you know is the solution to the problem mm-hmm. and I think it's absolutely absolutely right that they want to signal that to the marketplace to say hey we are actually developing games with this particular philosophy in mind because the number of games out there, even now, that are being released and they're not colorblind accessible, is 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 pretty shocking. Yeah, yeah it's true. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a bit uh, sad that they need to have people in staff that are some like have colorblindness or I don't know other mm. disabilities to think about it. So I don't know if we want to get um, I don't know Simon or something. I, I wouldn't like to like uh, think about. Mm, like, if we get employed there, it's then when they are going to start thinking about these things. But yeah. it's still, I guess, a step in the right direction. I I think repost production are French. <laughs> I've, I've looked it up. Uh, so, well, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so. Again, once again, completely ignore what I say <laughs> about where people are and where they're based. <laughs> okay, well, I guess this messes the editing a bit, so I'll need to include the earlier mistakes so that oh, this yeah, yeah, yeah. makes sense now. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the only way I'll learn is by being ridiculed in public. So let's let's make this part of my learning process. Oh, yeah. don't, don't see where people are from unless you actually know. Yeah, no problem. I mean, Ghost Stories, uh, repost production game, I believe. If I'm mistaken, that will be super embarrassing now. Great game, really love it. Currently my favorite co-op game. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, where do you see people like us in five years? I believe before you moved to Sweden, you probably said uh, maybe there won't be five years uh, mm-hmm. because you were planning to kill the lights or, well, think about killing the lights around yeah. April 2020. So where do you well, see it now in five years? I mean, I'm sure I'm sure you're aware of it yourself. There is a massive burnout that comes with doing this kind of content. Yeah, because it's just there's 
such a grind of things needing to be done and the stuff that needs to be done in order for that stuff to be done. And then there's all the stuff after it, like the advertising and the constant self-promotion and all these different kinds of things. And it's just, it's exhausting. And you get to a point where you just think to yourself, why am I, why am I doing this? And certainly with the Meeple Like Us as it currently is, there's no, you know, as I say, there's a, I did the 200th uh, review and teardown yesterday. So that's, that's quite a lot oh, of yeah. things for people to look at. I mean, it's not keeping up, keeping up to date with new releases or such, but it never has. So that can stand as a body of work that is just done. And then, yeah, okay, so we've got an idea for, for uh, the accessibility of the hobby, what could be done, the kind of problems and such. And that is a, a reasonable place to say, okay, that's, that's the point where we draw a line under it. But I mean, I go hot and cold on a regular basis because there are points at the site I have been incredibly burnt out and every single thing I've written has been a chore to do it. And there have been times where it's been a case of saying, I can keep on doing this forever and ever. And it's just mm. the mood swings that go along with this kind of content. There's a, a massive pressure. Even if you're, you don't have a big audience, there's a massive pressure to, to, yeah. to produce content, especially if you're doing it in the kind of schedule that we are, which is two posts a week, plus editorials, plus special features for patrons and all oh, those yeah. different kinds of things. Yeah. There is an awful lot of time that goes into the site. But I think now because it's something that aligns with what my professional responsibilities are going to be it's easier for me to justify spending that time than it has been over the past year or so uh because robert gordon university where i work at the moment doesn't have a games focus the only games focus it has is the one basically i forced in there through sheer sheer force of will you know well here's a programming module to teach well suddenly we're teaching games because that's what i'm interested in so i've had to force that into there but the new position it's a games you know it's an interaction designed for games anyway so i don't have to make so much of an effort to actually make what i'm doing for me play cost relevant to to the mm-hmm. day-to-day stuff five years time what i would really love to see is the site basically progressing towards a kind of crowdsourcing model and that mm-hmm. it shouldn't be me providing feedback on all these different kinds of games because again relatively abled there's there's a reasonable argument to be made I shouldn't be talking about this topic at all. But it would be nice if people could just say, right, okay, here's the experiences I have of the game. Here are the specific impairments I'm qualified to talk about as a basis of embodied experience. Here's what I think the grade should be, and here's my description of it. And it would be kind of nice because that would uh, it would mean that it w- the site wasn't capacity locked because it's literally just me writing what I can when I can and uh, Pauline occasionally as well when she's got time to do it. Hmm. It would be nice to scale up to at least something approaching a rate that is keeping pace with at least the big releases the game uh, the games companies are putting out at the moment. Yeah. At the moment, I don't think... We've covered one game from 2019. Just one from 2019. Hmm. Every single week, we fall farther and farther and farther behind because games are being released far, far quicker than we have time to, to talk about them. Yeah. And because we focus on the board game keep top five hundred, we're often it's often quite a bit of time before we even get to the things that people are are most uh, most keen to talk about. Mm-hmm. Like at the moment, Tapestry is the game that everybody's talking yeah. about. I, maybe twenty twenty one, I might get to that. <laughs> you know, with with the to do list that I currently have, and by the time twenty twenty one rolls around, nobody's going to be interested. <laughs> Unless you are specifically looking for Tapestry on the basis of it being an accessible or inaccessible game, nobody's going to be interested when we publish the review. I would like in five years' time if we were sort of looking more at what's released at the moment rather than what was released in the past. But also it's difficult to justify that at the moment because a lot of these games just, they get released, there's a lot of hype, and then they just disappear. You know, Mm -hmm. They don't have the longevity to to warrant anybody taking a serious look at their accessibility because just nobody's going to be talking about them in three or four years' time. Mm, yeah. Well, um, a while ago, we briefly, like, you were toying with the idea of creating a, um accessibility content creator mm. network, basically, with... Because, well, as far as I know, uh, the only... 
uh, people that talk about accessibility right now are people like us and this podcast and then also the playability podcast. Mm. There's actually a, a a new Facebook group called uh, Able Table Gaming. Oh. And what they look at is the accessibility of conventions, which I think is a really interesting angle uh, to address. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Uh, maybe some people there can... I can invite some... Well, probably the creator, I guess, mm -hmm. because if they uh, thought about it and just to create a group, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you share the link, we'll also post the link in the show notes. I will do that for other people as well. So yeah, that, that's uh, I've talked about. I've talked to Nancy Feldman, um, Laura Var on Twitter about mm. uh, conventions briefly because when she was appearing as a guest on the podcast, she's a blind. Uh, board gamer herself yeah. and yeah, I was asking about the general accessibility she was at OrcaCon I believe which is a smaller convention yes uh, in the US so not too high profile and I remember like she was using a service called Aira uh, where mm -hmm. you have a camera and you point I don't know the camera around and someone uh, on the phone basically yeah. talks to you and tells you like where you need to go and stuff like that but yeah it would be nice to talk to someone who has uh, really analyzed uh, conventions and accessibility of them so yeah thanks for sharing that yeah, yeah I'll, I'll definitely put you in touch uh, and I think one of the most interesting things about that that uh, group at the moment is not necessarily the focus on conventions but on what it potentially opens up for the future because one of the things that I would have loved to have done at some point was like the accessibility of mega games, you know, like watch the sky and those kind of things. Hmm. But that's, that is a site all on, on its own, you know, because it's such an interesting intersection of the game design, the way the organizers do things and the actual venues that people use for them. So it's, I, I think that is a project far beyond this with a scope far beyond what we could talk about on the site. But if you're looking at something like able table gaming, where they do have a focus on, physical presence at venues you know there is a whole range of directions that could possibly go mm -hmm. yeah so yeah about uh, the network uh, mm. basically that we briefly chatted about and uh, did, i believe your idea was like to bring us under one name and you were looking at it for a catchy name back yes. then <laughs> i'm guessing you are still looking for that catchy name because names are hard well, uh, the project status update there is, yes, yeah, phase one, still thinking of a name. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I believe uh, that could potentially help um, make us a little bit more visible and mm -hmm. basically show that uh, there's not just people like us that's talking about this. And it's it could be a good idea to develop further and see what we can actually do with it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of benefit that would come from that kind of thing. Even if it's a case of, you know, you go from one of these things here and there's like what they used to have back in the the, the 90s, you know, the web ring kind of thing. There's, an, there's another site that's talking about this, this similar kind of issue. Because if you move outside the realm of board gaming in particular, there's a huge amount of stuff happening in the role-playing game scene about yeah. accessibility. Mm. Uh, you know, they are, they are so much on the ball with this in a way that board game as a as a industry isn't you know you even see like for example evil heart games who just released uh, the the fate accessibility uh corset mm. and there is nothing equivalent in board gaming but the role-playing game scene are so plugged into this and they're so sort of cross-pollination of these different kinds of ideas that we're we're a fair bit behind as far as that goes and even video games are behind in this like there are a number of uh, accessibility focused uh blogs uh out there but it's difficult to know they're out there unless you already know they're out there. And mm -hmm. a network that sort of was designed with the idea of giving people roots to these different kinds of sites, I think would have a considerable benefit. It's just difficult to brand it because the branding issue is going to be is significant. You know, a good name is something that sticks in people's memories. And I'm just terrible at coming up with names. <laughs> Yeah. A while ago, I thought, oh, I've got a great name for it. It's going to be Able Top Gaming. And then oh. I thought, no, that's just Able Table Gaming. I'm just stealing their name. 
So <laughs> that that idea went away. No, no. A- A- Able Gamers is already taken. Yes. Sadly. <laughs> So yeah, we are, we are late. Maybe I don't know how many. Yeah. Has it been a decade since they are formed? <laughs> <laughs> it's just been a while. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's it's difficult to claim that like we have the the moral right <laughs> to take that name away from them. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah, I mean, if somebody comes up with a catchy name for it, I mean, I'm I'm quite happy to like set up a website and hook everything in. It's just you know you, you have to get the, the the fundamentals of it right. No. And the name, I think, is is a big is a big part of that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm I'm not too happy with the name of the podcast, basically. Um, and the only reason I continued with it because the blog was not supposed to be about board games at all. It's just that I started writing about board games initially, mm. and then I just really enjoyed doing that for a while, and decided well, to the, stick uh, with it. You did the the secret Hitler app, uh, yeah, uh, which is. The first contact that we had was about that the, the secret Hitler app. Yep, we were doing. that's true. And I remember from that point onwards, it's sort of the focus that I saw that the site tended to be a, a case of, well, let's let's double down on what we've actually done with that. And that secret Hitler app is great. I've actually recommended that to students have a look at it, saying, look, this is this is an example <laughs> of somebody doing something instead of me, which is complaining about things and not doing anything about them. <laughs> Well, uh, glad to hear that. Um, I was thinking that uh, it would have been much, much better to move uh, the app into a web app, web app, basically. But at mm. the time when I was uh, creating the app, I wasn't using a screen reader myself, so right. like I didn't think about it from that perspective. And now that I'm a screen reader user myself, it's much, much better, basically, if it was a web app. Because it would have yeah. been also uh, accessible through iOS or through a computer or through yeah. anywhere that has a browser, basically. And for people that are blind, they can just turn on the screen reader and uh, they get the same functionality. But yeah, that that app basically was what kicked off this. And yeah, what I was saying about the name, um, to go back to it, the only reason that I went with this name for uh, the podcast as well is because... Uh, I didn't want to bother anyone else to come up with a new logo <laughs> because it was already done for free and uh, asking for too many favors. <laughs> uh, you know how that feels. So I was like, okay, people know about this and I just go with it. Not the best yeah. name, but I guess I guess it works. When you have sort of like a, a degree of recognition of the name as well, it's really, really difficult to change it. And it's very, really a good idea to change things. I remember a few years ago, uh, the Royal Mail decided to go for a rebranding. They called themselves Consiglia for a while. Oh. And the Royal Mail, there is no better... <laughs> what's better branding than the Royal Mail? But <laughs> yeah. they decided, oh no, that that's old and stuffy. And it lasted, I don't know, a week <laughs> before, before they went back. And there was a point where, where Pizza Hut rebranded to Pasta Hut because they wanted to get rid of the reputation of being, you know, pizza and bad for you and such. Mm-hmm. And that lasted a week or so as well because sometimes you're just stuck with a name. Sometimes you, the one that you get to begin with is the one that you go on with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now that you mentioned Royal Mail, uh, you reminded me of Brexit and you reminded uh, me that uh, I w- probably won't be able to get cheap board games from the UK if you exit the the European Union? Well, I mean, if you look so... on eBay, there's a fairly good chance you'll find people selling their board game collections in exchange for food and water, because I think that's essentially the direction Brexit's going to take. <laughs> yeah. We'll trade oh, Gloomhaven boy. for two packets of crisps and, oh, <laughs> and <boy>. a tango. <laughs> oh. Oh, well, this, this definitely was a great conversation, Michael. I really enjoyed this talk. Oh, me too, yeah. Right, so we're slowly coming up to the end, <laughs> and like I usually ask uh, my guests to recommend a few board games. So, because uh, the podcast is about people who are blind or visually impaired, mm-hmm. do you have I don't know a game or two that you can recommend based from all the games that you've played so far? Like, what do you think would be fun for someone to pick up? Well. Probably the one that is the easiest recommendation is Skull. So I don't know if you've played Skull before, but it's basically poker without all the boring card play. You know, it is literally just 
working out if somebody is lying to you on the basis of the, the cards that they've actually played. And the standard set of skull comes with what are basically beer coasters, you know, pub coasters that you would you would uh, you would get these big round cardboard things. And while the game itself is not particularly accessible from the ground up, it's one of these games that's very straightforward to modify, and that you could just, for example, put a little thumb mark in the skull card that you yep. have, and then suddenly what you've got is a one hundred percent fully accessible fantastic game that you can play yeah. with you know anybody around you and even if you're just in a pub and you can just get some coasters off somebody you can make yourself a fully accessible game of skull with very little effort and there are very few games that are that easily modified to something playable for regardless of the extent of visual impairment you know even if you're all the way through to totally total blindness you can play a very very effective game of skull just yep. with some thumb marks in the, the discs and a bit of narration from the table. And I would also say the games like um, Fun Employed is it's the game I recommend people get once they get tired of Cards Against Humanity. So it's, mm. it's basically, and you get dealt out like a, a CV uh, of ridiculous qualifications that you then use to get a job that doesn't exist in the real world where other people around the table are basically the interview panel. So you might get uh, a card that says, you know, uh, is narcoleptic, uh, <laughs> steals from work, uh, terrible work ethic, all these different kinds of things. And then you apply for the job of supervillain. And then you've got to sort of make up the reasons why these terrible qualifications are what <laughs> should get you the job. And the reason why that one is very good for people with visual impairments is there is no reason for any of those cards to be hidden. There's mm. nothing to say, for example, that the interviewer can't just flip over cards and say, so on your CV it says, you steal from work. Tell us why that's going to be what we're looking for in a supervillain. And so nobody actually needs to be able to see any of the cards in order to, have, to engage in the fun that everybody's yeah. having. Nice. Yeah, uh, for Skull, uh, I've personally created my own copy. Well, I uh, asked a friend to just come up with the cards in a mm. Word document, print them, cut them, mm. and then just put a, a piece of tape on one yeah. of the skulls. And yeah. there you go. Like the Suddenly quickest, you have a fully, fully yeah, tactile game of yeah, Skull. the quickest mod. <laughs> and and one of the problems with Skull that I've found is that being totally blind you can't really get that feedback uh when other people play their cards yeah. Yeah. and like you can't see their facial expressions yeah but, but then you've also got access to like the the more subtle aspects where the other people aren't paying attention to yeah yeah that, that's true but the, like the more you play with someone i guess you then basically start expecting yeah. uh, of what their next move is. But yeah, it's a super tense game. Yes, and it's a great game. It's it's really a fun game, especially like to start uh, while people are coming over. I don't know when you're organizing or when you're just, you can end it with Skull. Yeah. Super quick, super easy to teach, super accessible. Yeah, that's yes. a great recommendation. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for well, thank you very spending much for your time. Me. Yeah, this was uh, great. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Uh, well, website is https meeplelikeus.co.uk. You can find me on Twitter at, at meeplelikeus and Facebook. Uh, I guess just search for meeplelikeus. I'm not 100% sure how you actually find groups on Facebook these days. Yeah. Uh, do, do you have a group or a page? Uh, there's a page, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, uh, I, I believe it should also be searchable via at people like us. Okay. Uh, but well, I'll I'll have the links down in yeah. the show notes, and yeah, it probably will just be a click away. Again, thanks so much, and this was a pleasure. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah. Cheers. Um. Yeah, and if you guys want to get in touch with me, you can email sightlessfun at outlook.com. You can also reach me on Twitter at sightlessfun or you can check out the website at www.sightless.fun thank you very much for listening and remember you can still have fun while being sightless
This episode was hosted and edited by Ertai Shashko. Special thanks to Fighting Windmills for providing their music for the podcast. You can find them at fightingwindmillsmk.bandcamp.com.